Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, thank you for your kingdom. Thank you for your life. Thank you that you desire to live your life through us, and that we can understand and know not just forgiveness and your grace, but also the opportunity we can to serve you and to be obedient to the things that you call us to do. Lord, I thank you for today. I thank you for the opportunity we have to open your word. Pray that the worries and cares of the previous week would be set aside, that we would be able to focus on you and you alone. Help us see truth in your word, but not just truth, but truth to be applied. Help us not just to be hearers of your word, but doers as well. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. May be seated. Bless you. It is cold, isn't it? Welcome to winter in Florida. This is my warmest sweater. I've worn it for you today. It's really thick, and I pull it out just for times like this. Uh, Diocletian was a Roman emperor, and he ruled Rome from the years 284 through 305 AD. It's one of the later emperors. And uh, Diocletian was born in a place called Dalmatia, which is part of modern-day Croatia. It's on the Adriatic Sea. It's directly across uh, the water from northern Italy. And uh, Diocletian was born there, raised there, not, not in any uh, prestigious or powerful family, just sort of a normal family. But Di Diocletian was a very, very ambitious man. So he decided that he would uh, try to find his pathway to power, and he decided that that would take place by joining the Roman legions, and he became a soldier. He was promoted. Uh, he was promoted to the point where, where he became very, very powerful, and uh, when the opportunity came in 284, he had been loyal to him, and uh, he, with those loyal men, then established himself as the emperor of Rome. <clears throat> he was an interesting guy. Historians tell us that he brought some much-needed reforms to the Roman Empire, uh, he made their laws more fair. He had better financial management. He worked on the infrastructure and uh, rebuilt a lot of things that were in disrepair throughout the empire. And he won several battles. Um, and uh, the Roman military became once again predominant in, in the world. And they were, they were safe, um, much safer under his rule. He also did an interesting thing in, in, in uh, 293. He decided that he just didn't want to rule the whole Roman Empire. So he said, all right, let's, let's uh, divide it up a bit. And, and uh, he asked three other men, uh, Maximius, uh, Constantinus, and Galerius, to um, divide the kingdom with him. And they divided it up, and they, they all ruled uh, in their particular areas. No Roman em emperor had ever done that before. Uh, he also did something interesting, and I found this out when my wife and I were in Eastern Europe a couple months ago. Uh, he decided he couldn't live in Rome anymore. He just he thought it was too decadent, and uh, he just wanted to go home. So he built a palace back in Dalmatia, and the artists have a rendering of this palace. Um, it's um, r really interesting. The uh, once, you, once, you, once you see it, <laughs> there it is. Beautiful, beautiful palace. Took years to build. And uh, my wife and I toured the ruins of, of this palace. It's still quite impressive. Uh, the, front, the front part of that uh, was the, um, go, back to the go back to the other one. 
the front part of that was his living quarters. The back part was the um, soldiers, where the soldiers lived. He, he ensconced himself there and became, it was very safe, but he wanted to live in this beautiful environment that he created for himself. So uh, you can go to the next one. His, um, the basement of this area just built these massive arches. Uh, just the, the engineering uh, for this time was, was just so impressive. We walked through room after room after room. And this is underneath that palace. This is where uh, servants lived and, and, and served and, and food was prepared. And then there are some areas that are still intact. In, in the peristyle up top is a beautiful example of, of Roman architecture. Just a, just a wonderful, glorious place. So he lived, he, he moved here and lived here the last years of his life. But uh, Diocletian wasn't known so much for his palace or his effective rule as he was known for one thing that was not so positive. Uh, in the year 303, he, along with his cohort Galerius, went to an oracle and uh, he wanted to know how they could really ensconce themselves and really dig in deep and, and make the kingdom safe, Roman, uh, the empire safe. And uh, the oracle said that the Christians were a threat to the empire. So Diocletian decided that the Christians needed to be removed from the Roman Empire. And the years 303 to 312 uh, defined more of what Diocletian is known for. It's called the Diocletian persecution. And historians tell us that it was the bloodiest persecution of any Roman Empire. If you were a Christian, you were found out to be a Christian, did not renounce your faith, your property was immediately taken from you. Many times you were thrown in, 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 in prison. Uh, many times your life would be forfeited. They raised churches all through the empire. They didn't want any church to exist. Bishops and other church leaders were put to death, beheaded. It was, it was a terrible time to be a Christian. We were touring the remains of this palace, and our guide was telling us all this. And, and I was thinking to myself, what, what would it have been like? Think about it. What would it have been like to be a Christian during that time? I think it would have been just awful. It would have just been fearful, and, and you didn't know what was going to happen next. And I think Christians during that time probably at times looked at themselves and said, or asked themselves this question, will the kingdom ever come? Will the kingdom ever come? Fast forward from Diocletian's day to today, most social scientists and, and historians would agree that at present we live in a post-Christian culture. Uh, Christians uh, in, in, in a lot of our culture uh, are characterized by being bigoted, racist, sexist, judgmental, and ignorant. And I was thinking back um, in terms of considering the present state of where we are in our culture, and I was thinking back to my, my elementary school days, which is now quite a, quite a long time ago. Um, I went to Nathan Hale School in Toledo, Ohio, went from kindergarten to eighth grade. And a typical school of that day, it was a rectangular, solid brick, two-story with a full basement, uh, all the classrooms you know, off the hallways, and uh, playground out to the side, paved with cement. And, and uh, that, that, was, that was the place that I was educated from kindergarten through eighth grade. We would line up to go into the school, and when the bell would ring uh, in the morning, uh, we would walk up two sets of stairs and, and to the first floor, either one, and then you would see, if you were observant, this huge painting on the wall uh, in, the, in that hallway. 
And I remember looking at that, that painting and didn't realize what it was until uh, later on uh, in, in my schooling there. About, about sixth or seventh grade, I finally looked at that painting and go, I know what that painting is. It was a painting of the Good Samaritan. There's a man leaning over a man who, who was obviously injured and, and it was ministering to him. And uh, I thought, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. Something from the Bible. You wouldn't find a painting of the Good Samaritan in a school, public school today. Wouldn't be allowed. Fifth grade, we were allowed to go across the street to a Methodist church for religious education in a public school. It was optional. Not all my classmates did, but most did, and we did that. Uh, Christmas time, we actually sang Christmas carols and talked about them, and, and it was considered just part of who we were. I'm not saying that we need to go back to that. I'm just saying the culture has changed. And I look today where we are, and I ask myself the question, maybe those Christians asked back in the year 303 through 312, will the kingdom ever come? Is God still at work? So our text today is um, in Matthew 13. We've spent, as Gary said, this, these last few weeks on the kingdom parables contained in Matthew 13. You have the privilege of hearing the shortest parable uh, uh, today. It's just one verse long. Uh, so let's read that. Uh, it's, it's Matthew 13, uh, verse 33. He, Jesus, told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. This is the word of God. Now you might be thinking, short first, short sermon. No, they got the old guy up here. I can, I can stretch this one out, okay? So we, there, there are some things in here that I, that I found interesting, although I first read it, I thought, okay, what, what's the meaning of this? Yeast, the kingdom of God is like yeast. And Jesus painting these word pictures um, yeast in the Old Testament, and even in the New Testament, also called leaven, it was all, always characterized in a negative sense. Uh, the uh, yeast was uh, not allowed in the bread that, you would, that would accompany the sacrifice you brought to the tabernacle or the temple. Could not have yeast in that bread. And it commemorated the Passover, where they had unleavened bread. They had to make their bread quickly. They couldn't wait for the, for the dough to rise, so they had unleavened bread. And they, when they, the night that they, and the next day when they uh, escaped from Israel, uh, from Egypt, the children of Israel. Also, Jesus in, in the gospel says, beware of the leaven or the yeast of the Pharisees. Beware of the yeast of, the, of Herod. So even Jesus used it in a negative sense. But here he turns the, the, the table completely around and says, oh, the kingdom of God is like yeast. So here, here's a parable about making bread, or at least making bread dough. When's the last time you made bread? Any, time, any hands of, of anyone who's ever made a loaf of bread from scratch? Not, not when you put them in the machine, but scratch. Yeah, there's a few out there still. I buy Dave's Killer Bread, so I don't, I, I don't usually make it. Uh, but um, there are four ingredients in bread. What are they? Flour, water, yeast. What else? Yes, excellent, salt. That's it. Aren't you glad you came? Four ingredients. Flour, water, yeast, salt. So you're listening to Jesus talk, and he's saying, okay, here, here's the kingdom of God. This is what the kingdom of God is like. It is like a, a, a woman who takes yeast and mixes in about 60 pounds of flour. The older translations say three measures. A measure was about 20, 20 pounds. So you're talking a lot of flour. 
Typical loaf of bread is made up of six cups of flour. One cup of flour, in terms of its actual weight, weighs four ounces. So one loaf of bread uses about one and a half pounds of flour. 60 pounds of flour that Jesus talks about here would, would make approximately 40 loaves of bread. And to make one loaf of bread requires a quarter ounce of yeast. And that bit of yeast completely affects the mass 24 times its weight. So a little bit of yeast affects 24 times its weight. Plus this dough takes kneading. You, you, you don't just throw it together and then put it in the oven. You have to knead it. You have to work those ingredients together. And, and that takes anywhere from five to 10 minutes. So to knead 40 loaves of bread would take up to seven hours. So what Jesus is picturing is this is, a, this is a day of work. This is a long period of time, not something you're just throwing together. It's a full day's work. So what's the point? Yeast. What's, what's Jesus trying to communicate about the kingdom? Well, I, I see three things here. The first is this. Uh, yeast works in silence. The kingdom of God is silent. And the effect of yeast takes place in silence. When I was a senior in college, our local <clears throat> popular station came out with this, we're going to do the 100 top songs, the 100 pop, top pop songs, and we're going to have a countdown. We'll start at 100, and we'll go all the way to 1. And uh, it went on for several days, and they, uh, you know, they Adver advertised it, and we were listening, and we were all wondering what the top song was, and they picked the best one when they got there. Uh, it was from Simon and Garfunkel, best group ever, and uh, the song, song was The Sound of Silence. It's a great song. Sound of Silence. Kingdom of God is silent, and I think in our culture, and many of us as believers, we've lost the ability to listen. And more importantly, I think we've lost the ability to be silent. The last, the last verse in Proverbs 17, Proverbs 17, 38, Solomon pins these words, even a fool, when he is silent, is considered wise. I've made that my life verse, okay? So there, there you go. Even a fool, when he's silent, there's, there's, there's a silence that, that permeates the kingdom. Everyone's on social media today proclaiming their opinions. I'm really, I'm really not interested anymore in your opinions. You know why? Because I'm not even interested in my own anymore. There are so many opinions out there. Zach Van Dyke, a few weeks ago when he was preaching, said, you know, I, I, I decided to take a Twitter fast. I thought, well, that's a good thing to do. Just sort of take a step back. Kingdom of God is silence. So here's the question I ask myself when I am prone to communicate. Is God going to be honored by this? Is this proclaiming the kingdom? And yes, we need to proclaim the gospel, but we don't need to argue people into the kingdom. God takes care of that. The kingdom of God is like yeast, and it permeates, and it permeates in silence. You cannot, and I cannot, manage another person's life, especially if that person's related to you, right? So, Will the kingdom ever come? Well, Jesus, I think, is saying, in part, the kingdom of God is not some showy demonstration given to impress. The kingdom of God is working its way through history, 
steadily and, and for the most part in silence. It's at work. Another thing about yeast is it's saturating. The yeast works its way through the bread to affect every part. That's why the kneading takes place. I shared with you in the past that uh, a year and a half ago, my wife and, and I visited Israel for the first time. We'd never been, and uh, we were deciding who are we going to go with and, and what's that going to be like. And we went online, and we found a tour that... Um, advertised itself. It looked really good, but it advertised itself in part as the slow tour of Israel. And uh, we thought, well, you know, we're getting up there. Let's, let's just take our time and going through, going through Israel. So we went on the slow tour. We got there, uh, and the, the group first got together the first night. We were going to take, take off together and do our tour. And uh, there were a lot of slow people on the slow tour. It was, there were some old folks there. And I watched them come in, and I'm going, whoa, okay. Didn't know what to expect. Some of the best people I've ever met. We had a glorious time working our way through, through Israel. One, one of the families there, the, uh, they, they, uh, this older couple brought his mother. She was 98 years old. First time she'd ever been. She's in a wheelchair, uh, but just the most marvelous personality, the sweetest person you'd ever want to meet. And uh, this family, it's a son and his wife and then their children and their spouses, they were just a beautiful, cohesive unit. And uh, our guide was, was an Israeli. He wasn't a believer, but he, he knew his Bible. And the last night, we were reflecting on our tour. And he said, you know, the highlight of my tour, this young Israeli said, was watching this woman, this 98-year-old woman, at the tomb, at Gordon's tomb. We were there the first group that day. It was a beautiful morning. She got out, out of her chair, and she couldn't get to that tomb fast enough. She said, I'll never forget that. There's always people popping up in the kingdom. 98-year-old woman who loves Jesus. We were down by the Dead Sea. My wife and I, uh, the morning after we spent the night at a hotel, walked down to the shore, and we're walking back along the sidewalk of the hotel. There were some women there um, speaking Spanish. We figured they are probably from South or Central America. They are taking pictures. We waited for them to be done. Then we started to make our way through. And one of the women called out my wife's name, Renee. And uh, we, she turned around. She said, I know you. And she said, yes. And uh, this woman was Peru. She was the pastor's wife. She said, you spoke at a conference to women in Ecuador 10 years ago. And uh, I, uh, I remember that. Changed my life. Changed our ministry. And uh, here we are meeting in Israel. You can't make that stuff up. Here, kingdom people pop up all the time. We also visited Mount Carmel, where Elijah defeated the prophets of Baal. Prophets of Baal are trying to call down sacrifice, fire from heaven to consume their sacrifice. Elijah finally gets his turn. He douses his with water. Fire comes down. It consumes it. He sees the drought's going to be over that he prophesied. He hits this, one, this, this grand slam home run in terms of the day of a prophet. But then he realizes that Jezebel, the, the queen, has sent men out to take his life, and he runs for his life. All the way from northern Israel to the southern part, and it is desolate in the southern part. And along the way, Elijah is, is depressed, he's angry, and, and he just tells God, and, 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 hey, just, okay, I'm done. Just take my life. This doesn't make any more sense. Finally ends up in another mountain, Mount Horeb, in a cave, 
God causes a, earth, a great wind to come, an earthquake to come, a great fire to come. And scripture says God wasn't in the fire. You know how God shows up? Finally in this, I love the old translation, a still, small voice. A gentle whisper. And Elijah complains. He says, I'm the only one left. And God says to him, no, I've got 7,000 people in Israel who have not bowed their knee to Baal. You're not done yet. Kingdom of God is like yeast. It's saturating. I don't know how you feel about this, but I like all sorts of music. And one of the forms of music I like is rap. I'm sorry. I'm old. I know that's weird. Um, I don't like, you know, some of the more coarser uh, types of rap, but I, sure, I just have always liked rap music. I just have. And my son-in-law, who's my window, window on the cultural world, said, Dad, he said, uh, you got to hear this, this rapper. I know you sort of like it. He, it's, it's, this guy's sort of new on the scene. It's, he's pretty cool. And, and his name is Nathan Firestein. And um, I looked him up. He goes by his initials, NF. And this young man, his late 20s, and the number one album uh, this summer in the country. And he's a believer in Jesus. And so I went, downloaded a couple. I was proud of myself. I could download a couple of his uh, albums. <laughs> and uh, I'm listening to this rap. I'm just, I, he's good. And he's soul-searching. And, and, and it's gut-level honest. And there is a spiritual component to it that's marvelous. And his album, The Mansion, uh, the second part of this this song or this rap, uh, I wrote down these words because it, when I first heard it, it really moved me. The song's called I'll Keep On. Beautiful, beautiful theme to it, beautiful music to it, and then he, then he raps. And here's the second, second verse. I'm not going to rap it. I'm just going to read it. <laughs> I thought maybe by the by, by time I got to Waterford I could do it, but I, I don't think I can do it. It must be weird, wouldn't it? See a guy rap up here? Okay. So here's what, what he, he says. Trust is something I'm not accustomed to. And I know the Bible says I should always trust in you. But I don't ever read that book enough. And when I have a question, I don't take the time to look it up or pick it up. It collects dust on my nightstand. I'm just being honest. Please take this out of my hands. I have no control. I'm just a person. But thank the Lord I serve a God who's perfect. I do not deserve the opportunity you've given me. I never knew what freedom was until I learned what prison means. I'm not ashamed. I don't care if they remember me. My life will always have a hole if you're not the centerpiece. Take me out of bondage. Take all of my pride. If I don't have a savior, I don't have nothing inside. Take all of my lust. Take all of my lies. There's no better feeling when I look in the sky in your eyes. It's amazing. This beautiful end of this song, I'll keep on, I'll keep on, I'll keep on. Just when I feel I'm the only one left, kingdom people pop up. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like yeast and it saturates silently, but it works all its way all through the dough. God has his people all throughout the world and they're doing his work. Kingdom of God is slow as well. Silent, saturating, but it's also slow. Yeast takes time to have an effect on the bread. The dough needs to rise. You, even when you, after you knead it, you have to set it aside for a period of time. That dough has to rise. The yeast has to, it takes time to do its work. Americans are always 
we're just always in a hurry, aren't we? we I, I, I can't believe how much of a hurry I'm always in. We were in uh, Serbia, we were at this restaurant, we were on our own for lunch in the middle of our tour. We had, to, we had about two, two and a half hours to eat lunch and we found this wonderful restaurant, What great waiter, beautiful meal. Got to the end of the meal and I called him over and I said, hey, uh, could we get our, our bill now? Uh, we need to get back and, and uh, we'd like to get going if that's okay. And, and this waiter, older gentleman, he looked down at our table and he says, oh, you Americans, you're always in a hurry. And I would have argued with him, but I had to get back to the bus, right? <laughs> it's, the kingdom of God is slow. If I'm driving, it's a two-lane road going my way, there's a stoplight, I always have to get in the lane with the less cars. I just have to. I, I'm not in a hurry most of the time to go anywhere, but what is it about us? A friend of ours from South America, a woman who's a missionary down there for three years, came back to the States on furlough, and we were at a wedding reception talking about her time there. I said, what are the weddings like? down in, in, uh, in Chile, and she said, oh, they're different. They're wonderful. She said, but uh, you, you'll get an invite, and, and the invitation will say 1 o'clock, and if you show up at 1 o'clock, there will be nobody there. She said, about 2 o'clock, 2.30, some people will start coming in, maybe setting up. Right around 3.30, 4 o'clock, maybe the ceremony will get underway, and it just we, they just take their time, and that celebration goes into the early hours of the morning. She said, I miss, I miss Chile. I miss that pace. I always want God to hurry up, don't you? Come on, let's go. Let's hurry up. Let's get it done. And Jesus is saying a very important thing to us, I think, two millennia later. It's going to be okay. It takes time. Will the kingdom come? Yes, it will come, but it's slow. And I want to remind you of a verse that I read a few weeks ago when I was here, because Peter does a beautiful job of, of, of allowing us to see our world through God's eyes. He writes in, in uh, 2 Peter 3.8, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Peter is saying, look, a day, a thousand years, a thousand years, God's not bound by time. God's not in a hurry. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as we understand slowness. Instead, he is patient. So I think Jesus is, is helping us see that the kingdom is silent, it's saturating, and it's slow, especially as we might consider it. Diocletian, the emperor, once he instituted this persecution in the year 303, <clears throat> decided in the year 305 that he was just done ruling. He had his palace built, and uh, he was just going to just give up power. As far as I know, 
He's the only Roman emperor who willingly gave up his power. He let, he let the other parts of, of, of the leadership run it for a few years. And, uh, but the one thing that he was, was very, very committed to was still the persecution of Christians. During this time, we found this out on the tour. His, his wife and his daughter had both secretly become believers. And when Diocletian found that out, he had them both put to death. He hated Christianity. He wanted to eradicate it from the kingdom. In the year 306, the son, son of Constantinus, named Constantine, uh, with his loyal band of, of Roman legions, took power in Rome, and uh, over the next few years consolidated that power. Constantine, uh, in uh, the early years of his reign, became a devout Christian. In the year 324 of his reign, he established Christianity as, as a embraced religion in Rome, and a few years later became the official religion of Rome. And uh, another part of this palace, and, and there's the last picture I want to show you, there's this tower. That tower is an original. It was built later. But that tower is built over the crypt that Diocletian built for himself that he wanted to be buried in when he died. He died in 312, and his, his body was, was put in there. A, a few years later, after Constantine began to rule, property was given back to the Christians. They began to, to permeate the culture again. Uh, some Christians decided that, you know what, we're going to remove those bones and we're going to make that place a place of worship. And for hundreds of years, underneath that tower is this beautiful chapel where they've worshipped for that period of time. Kingdom of God. How do we apply it? Well, here's how I apply it. Maybe this might help you. First of all, I need to be silent. I have a hard time listening to God sometimes, and I need to listen to him, and I also need to listen to others. I need to be expectant. Kingdom of God is saturated. You never know when king kingdom people are going to pop up. My daughter was visiting me, uh, visiting a few weeks ago. I said, Dad, have you ever heard of Michael Lorenzen? I go, never heard of him. 24-year-old pitcher for the Cincinnati Reds. She said, oh, Dad, he's got a great story. And uh, he's a good pitcher, and he's, you know, he's, uh, he's in the majors, and, and he's created a little bit of a stir because he's got tattoos all over his body. And one of his tattoos on his right arm, pitching arm, he's got the numbers 1, period, 1, period, 6. Just beautifully done on his arm. There it is, 116. Finally, someone says, what in the world do those numbers mean? Michael Lorenzen looked and says, it's Romans 116. Reminds me, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God unto salvation. Michael Lorenzen tells the story, 18 years old, he's strung out on drugs in a Southern California beach and a person he never knew, has never seen since, walked up and shared Jesus with him. And he became a believer, changed his life. You never know when kingdom people are going to pop up. The last thing I see is I need to be still. I need to not get ahead of God. I'm reminded that God's working his plan, not mine. And I need to yield myself to that plan. So, I may be silent, and it may seem slow, but the kingdom of God is saturating our world, and God will have his way on this earth. He will. doesn't matter who's seemingly in control. God's purposes will always be lived out. So I want to declare to you and remind you today, men and women, 
the kingdom is coming. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this short but meaningful parable, these words from the Lord. And I pray that we would embrace your kingdom and realize that uh, we are called to be men and women who are going to, to live out the kingdom in our lives and bring that kingdom to the world around us. Help us to listen. Help us, help us to understand that, that uh, your people are all around and, and uh, we need to rejoice in that and know that your plan is being lived out. Give us the peace in that plan. Give us the encouragement as we see you at work. And we look forward to the day we would see you face to face. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.